I want to thank all of you for your love and for your many expressions of kindness and grace and uh, compassion in the last few weeks as my family has gone through what no family wants to, but far too many of you understand uh, something about what that is. And while I won't talk about that today, I want to share um, my gratefulness. It will be with me and with my family always. And what I hope will not be with me and my family always is the 15 pounds I have gained since you all have been bringing food and desserts. I never eat desserts, but I have had so many wonderful desserts that, uh, yes, I'm, I'm working on taking that 15 down. It's not quite 15 anymore, but uh, thank you for all of your love and your kindness. I invite you to stand as you are able for the reading of the gospel from Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. This is Mark's uh, account of Palm Sunday. Hear the word of the Lord. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, What are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Just say this, The Lord needs it and will send it back here immediately. They went away, and they found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. And as they were untying it, some of the bystanders indeed said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. And then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And then he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let us pray. O Lord, use your servants' lips and your people's ears and hearts that as they are joined today, that the seed of your word might be planted and brought forth with a resurrection joy. Amen and amen. Hosanna literally means, save us, help us, please. It is the cry of Palm Sunday. It is the quintessential marker of Jesus' followers in treating him in a way that had become, by the time of Jesus, an expression of praise. But here in this particular context, it is more than an expression of praise. In this particular context, it becomes a messianic affirmation. Help us. 
save us. And so today, we remember these words from Palm Sunday. Well, first of all, we can talk for a moment about Jesus and the donkey. Jesus has an awareness of where the donkey is and sends two of the disciples to the nearest town and says, you will find the donkey. Now, there are a couple of streams of interpretation. One stream of interpretation says, well, Jesus must have prepared the way beforehand and and gotten in touch with someone and had the donkey ready. But when it gets down to it in the book of Mark, the book of Mark is, in my view, unreservedly showing us that Jesus knows more than human knowledge can attest. Jesus sees beyond what human beings can see. This shows up a couple of places here. It's not just with a donkey. Aren't donkeys cute? They're just really interesting looking animals. But Jesus' knowledge and power are revealed, number one, here, where he says, go into the village and immediately as you enter it, you will find there a colt that has never been ridden. Now, that's an interesting thing because uh, a king does not share his donkey. A king does not share his colt. We'll see a little later. A king does not share his mule. Whatever it is that the king rides upon belongs to the king and the king only. And so Jesus is requesting this donkey that has never been ridden. Three chapters later, something similar will happen as Jesus and his disciples are preparing to Uh, have the last supper he will tell his disciples go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you follow him and wherever he enters say to the owner of the house we need somewhere to share our meal together and so we have here the testimony of Jesus's knowledge and power that are beyond the knowledge and the power of the ordinary Jesus sees He sees us when we want to be seen. He sees us at our worst. He sees what's happening in a street right now in Jakarta. He sees the poor woman who is kneeling at the side of her bed in Russia praying, praying for a child who is sick. Jesus sees And his knowledge and his power are not limited in the way that our knowledge and power are limited. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Just as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And my ways higher than your ways, says the Lord. And so we find out here as Jesus is entering toward Jerusalem... That we have a plan that's unfolding that's not just a natural plan. We have a plan that is unfolding and Jesus, the Messiah, can see and can put together this plan from afar. Jesus' knowledge and power are revealed when he says to the disciples, here's what you're going to find. Here's how you're going to find it. Here's what people might say to you. Hey, what are you doing taking that donkey? Here's what you're to answer. And it all happens according to plan. Well, a word about donkeys. We can't read into first century thought, 21st century thought. 
And so if we were asked, what animal might you want to ride? Personally, I would want to be on a camel. I think camels are fierce looking, they're fast, they're strong. You know, if you want to walk up to your enemy and intimidate your enemy, yeah, walk up on a camel. Have the camel look down and slobber. If you've got a camel, the camels, you know, their, their salivary glands are very active. And uh, if you have a camel, you'll want one of those dentist suction tools handy so that you can suck out the mouth of the camel because he's got too much saliva going on there. Some people might say, well, I'm a horse rider. Might pick out a Clydesdale or something like that. Uh, somebody might, might want a, a different kind of animal like a, like a dog or a descented skunk. Very few people would say donkey, though. The donkey is, in the 21st century, an underappreciated animal. An animal that we often see as silly, maybe even mocking the donkey, the poor donkey. But a word about donkeys. We, we shouldn't read our understanding of donkeys into the ancient understanding of donkeys. Abraham, the father of the nation, when he goes off to find the mountain where he believes that God is calling him to offer Isaac, Abraham, the father of the nation, rides a donkey. Balaam, in the book of Numbers, now, Balaam is the professional cursor. That doesn't mean he goes around saying bad words better than anybody else in the sense that we might think of cursing. But in the ancient sense of cursing, you wanted your enemies not to prosper. And so you could hire Balaam to say the kinds of things about your enemies that would make their lives miserable. And so the Moabites hired Balaam to curse the people of Israel. And Balaam is on his way. Balaam actually, to be honest, is one of the few Old Testament characters that we see not only in the Old Testament... But there's actually a Balaam inscription. We have extra biblical um, literature that talks about this character. This famous character, well, what does he get on when he goes from place to place? He gets on a donkey. A donkey is not understood to be a bad way to ride in the ancient world. And so Balaam is riding the donkey, and the donkey can see what the famous seer cannot the donkey sees the angel with a flaming sword in his hand waiting to put Balaam's life to an end and the donkey sits down and Balaam beats the donkey. The donkey says, why are you beating me? And Balaam answers, <laughs> like it's an ordinary thing to have a conversation with a beast. My point is that Balaam rides a donkey. Solomon, when it's not clear who is going to follow David on the throne, and there's some succession problems that are happening, and Bathsheba and uh, some of David's advisors come in and say, if you want Solomon to succeed you on the throne, you had better do something quickly. What David says in 1 Kings, that get Solomon to ride my mule. And since only the king rides the king's animal, if Solomon is riding the king's animal, then Solomon is understood to be the heir apparent to King David. So while we might think of donkeys as laughable, 
while they may not be our favorite animals, few of us may ask for donkeys for Christmas like children ask for ponies. The donkey was a perfectly acceptable mode of transportation, not just for ordinary people, but even kings. And more specifically, there is the prophecy in Zechariah 9 that speaks of not just any king, but the long-awaited king coming on a donkey. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus, fulfilling this prophetic image from Zechariah 9, 9, comes to the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. And it is a symbol of his knowledge, of his power, and that he is the long-awaited king. Well, Jesus makes quite an entrance when he comes into Jerusalem. He comes and He tells two of his disciples to go and find the donkey and they find the donkey and then when Jesus gets on the donkey they start spreading cloaks. The spreading of cloaks is specific in and of itself. John and I were talking about how to pronounce this king's name. We might call it Jehu but the official anglicized pronunciation of Hebrew is Jehu. And so we're going to look here at King Jehu. Now, this king is told that he is going to be king by a prophet. We know that prophets are considered to be odd people. John, the baptizer, wears weird clothes. He has this weird diet that he follows. Uh, There seem to be specific ways that prophets dress. There seem to be specific things that they say. Their hair, even, um, is is somehow... Their hair is styled in some way that a lot of people can look and tell there is a prophet And these were often people, sometimes they were central to society, like the prophet Isaiah was was almost a member of the king's court. But then there were outsiders, and those prophets that were outside were, were seen to be on the margins of society. This prophet comes, and he tells Jehu, you're going to be king. So when Jehu came back to his master's officers, they said to him, is everything all right? Why did that madman come to you? And he initially tries to play it off. And he says, well, you know that sort and how they babble. They said, liar. Come on, tell us. And Jehu says this. This is what he said to me. Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. And they hurriedly took all their cloaks and spread them for him on the bare steps and they blew the trumpet and they proclaimed Jehu is king. 
As the disciples and the followers of Jesus take off their cloaks and put it on the donkey, as they take off their cloaks and place them on the road in front of Jesus, they are making the statement that Jesus is king. It's not just the Hebrews who saw this as a sign of of reverence. Um, We find Plutarch speaking about Cato, when the time of Cato's military service came to an end, he was sent on his way, but not with blessings as is common, and not with praises, but with tears and insatiable embraces, the soldiers casting their cloaks down for him to walk upon, kissing his hands, things which the Romans of that day rarely did, and only to a few of their imperators. So someone who is honored greatly, someone who is esteemed highly, those around take off their cloaks. They take off their cloaks and spread before him. Jesus is king. Jesus comes and the donkey of Zechariah is this symbol that he is fulfilling the messianic prophecy. The cloaks and The clothing that's placed before him reminds us that the disciples and those who see him enter believe that he is king. And now we can look at one of the other symbols. The symbol of the day, in fact. The symbol of the palm branch. The palm branch is all over the place. And if you ever decide you want to go to Israel with me, I will be pointing out palm branches all over the place on artifacts. For example, this particular artifact came from an ancient synagogue. In the middle is uh, a representation of the temple. And on the sides of the temple, we have, in fact, palm trees. Palm trees representing Israel representing the Middle East, representing not just the place, but also the worship of the Lord. This is from a synagogue in uh, what is now known as Gaza. And you see the symbols of the temple. One symbol is the menorah there in the center. And the menorah uh, reminds us of the worship of Yahweh in the temple. But right next to the menorah is, in fact, a palm branch. This image is, is everywhere. It's even on the coins of the realm. Very often we have palm trees that are found on coins from this area. And some of the apocryphal books tell us a little bit more about palm trees. Now, sometimes people ask me, do you read the Apocrypha? Should, should we read the Apocrypha? And my snide answer to that is, if you want to fall asleep, <laughs> read First Maccabees or Second Maccabees, and it'll be just like Ambien. It'll put you right out. But I'm going to go to First and Second Maccabees today just to look at the palm branches. Okay? Simon has retaken the citadel at Jerusalem. This is a major, major moment of victory for the Hebrew people, for the Israelites. On the 23rd day of the second month, 
In the 171st year, the Jews entered this citadel at Jerusalem with praise, with palm branches, with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments, and with hymns and songs, because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. The branches. The branches are royal. They are symbols of victory. Second Maccabees. This guy's gotten himself in a little bit of trouble, and he's trying to make up with the king. Now, a certain alchemist who had formerly been high priest but had willfully defiled himself in the times of separation realized there was no way for him to be safe or to have access again to the holy altar. And so he went to King Demetrius in about the 151st year, presenting to the king a crown of gold, and a palm. And besides these, some of the customary olive branches from the temple. What I'm saying is that the palm branch is, in fact, the symbol of Jesus as royalty. The palm branch is a recognition that as Jesus enters Jerusalem, Jesus enters Jerusalem as the messianic king. He enters with the clothing down before him, with the palm branches waving. He enters as the Messiah, as the king, and hear me. He wants to be your king. Now, we're all caught up in the affairs of the the royal family. We have a couple of royals that are living with us. Now, I, I love the intrigue of, of the, the, the palace over the last, you know, thousand years. And so, while we don't have a king, there are some who would say we, we kind of enjoy that the United Kingdom does, while we don't have to pay for them and we don't have to worry, worry about them. But Jesus wants to be your king. Jesus wants you to willingly offer your life to him. Jesus wants to be your sovereign. And what that means is that while we might have freedom of speech, if Jesus is our sovereign, if Jesus is our Lord, we better watch what Jesus says about what we say. If Jesus is our king, we may have the right to do whatever we want to with the resources that we have, but if he's our king, we'd better watch the way we use what God has given us. If Jesus is our king, we'd better enter his kingdom with reverence, with praise, with honor. This word, Hosanna, means literally help, I pray, save, I pray. And and how many times do we need to speak these very words? This is our cry in time of trouble. Help, I pray. Save, I pray. Have you ever been lost, like lost out in the Red River Gorge? 
not knowing where you're headed or, or what direction will take you back to where you want to go. A friend of mine hit his head and had a stroke and was lost in the Red River Gorge for five days before somebody found him. And thank God they found him alive. Our cry in times of trouble, Lord, save, help me. Our cry when we have broken hearts, when we don't know what to think or how to feel and all we know is the pain of the moment of existence. Hosanna, help I pray, save. Our prayer when we've been crushed, when husband and wife have in the same week lost their job, when a child that someone is worried about for years and years is arrested 17 states away. Hosanna, help, I pray, save, I pray. When we're frightened, and God knows what we're frightened of, and let me tell you, I am not afraid of flying. I am afraid of taking off, and I'm afraid of landing. If you're ever on an airplane with me, you will notice me praying as we take off until the wheels go up, and until all wheels are safely on the ground again during the descent, um, and, and we're slowing down at an appropriate speed. 400 to zero is not an appropriate speed, but uh, 400 to 350 to 200, all, all of that, you know. When we're afraid, Hosanna, help, I pray, save, I pray. There's a king who knows where the donkey is, and he knows your heart. There's a king who knows what the people around the donkey are going to say, and he knows your deepest fears and anxieties and the pain that you have known. There's a king who knows that the donkey will be sent, and that king is the king who wants you in his kingdom. He knows our brokenness. He knows our fears. He knows what we're proud of and the things we do well. And he saves. He saves. One of the interesting things about this passage is I don't know of any passage that ends so anticlimactically. We've got all of this going on. And think about all that comes into the imagery of Mark 11, 1 through 10. Jesus is hailed as the messianic representation of Zechariah 9, 9. Jesus is proclaimed king, honored one as people place their garments before him and wave palm leaves. And what would normally happen would be once the procession those going before Jesus, those going after, got into the city, then the mothers and fathers of the city would come and would welcome the honored one. But those on the inside rejected him. And so the procession, the procession only went so far. 
And in what I think is one of the strangest terms in all of New Testament literature, we find anticlimactically the end of the scene described. Then Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus is not recognized as king by those inside Jerusalem. We know how this unfolds in the days to come. We know that the money changers the next day will be driven from the temple and by Friday there will be crowds who are chanting crucify him, crucify him. He will be beaten and bloodied, nailed to a cross and the kingdom that he has come to establish won't be exactly like those who watch him enter in vision. The kingdom that he comes to establish will be a kingdom that will change the world. That will split history in two. That will invite us to become citizens with the communion of saints with a great cloud of witnesses. Will you be like those on the outside of Jerusalem and hail Jesus as your king and follow him with your life? Or will you shrug like those inside Jerusalem who didn't believe, who weren't seeking, and who didn't recognize that God himself in the person of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity incarnate, had visited them. How will you respond to the king on the donkey? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.